Rico Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. EcoReport is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Good morning and welcome to EcoReport. For WFHB, I'm David Lyman. And I'm Don Guerra. In recent weeks, Bloomington city officials have debated whether to make it legal for bicyclists to ride on city sidewalks. This sidewalk provision is part of a larger group of revisions to city code proposed by the Planning and Transportation Department. It's currently illegal to ride a bicycle on city sidewalks, but the law isn't often enforced. City project engineer Neil Copper told the city council there was debate among city officials about whether to propose the change. At a May 24th meeting, council member Chris Sturban expressed concern that the new law could make cyclists unsafe as well as pedestrians. A non-binding straw poll after that initial discussion resulted in three yeses and three noes. Three council members passed. At last week's meeting, city council members continued their debate. Project engineer Neil Copper recommended legalizing sidewalk riding with some conditions. He said there are circumstances where it's safer for a bicyclist to ride on a sidewalk, and the code revisions would provide some legal protections. A bicycle cannot ride on a sidewalk if the sidewalk is congested with pedestrian traffic. A person on a bicycle would be required to yield to all pedestrians on the sidewalk. They'd be required to give an audible warning when passing a pedestrian on the sidewalk. They'd be required to dismount if necessary to pass a visually impaired person without inconveniencing them. Um, There's a requirement that a person on a bicycle couldn't pass within three feet of a pedestrian if they're traveling faster than an ordinary pedestrian pace. A person on a bicycle wouldn't be allowed to suddenly leave a sidewalk into the path of a vehicle. Um, and a person on bicycle would be required to operate at an ordinary pedestrian speed when they're approaching a driveway or intersection if there's a vehicle approaching that driveway or intersection close enough that it could cause a hazard. Of those members of the public who spoke on the topic, most favored allowing cyclists on sidewalks. City resident Paul Russo said, while the city claims to be bicycle friendly, most of this city doesn't have the infrastructure to cycle safely. I live near Hillside. I would characterize Hillside as a 45-mile-an-hour highway disguised as a residential street. It's a disgrace. It's a disgrace to the city. And there's a four-foot sidewalk there. You either get killed in the street or you ride on the sidewalk. Some council members again voiced concerns about changing the existing bicycle laws. Council member Chris Storbum said a compromise might be needed. It's the all-or-nothing that's wrong here, you know. We all know there are places where it's needed. We all know it isn't a crime to ride to church with your kids in a safe manner. You know, we all know that. How do we add the safety sidewalks where it really makes sense, and how do we respect the pedestrian in the area where it doesn't make any sense to ride? 
the council agreed to postpone voting on the ordinance changes until the August 9th meeting. Piedmont Smith said she would like more public feedback before the city council takes up the legislation again. The proposed changes came from the Traffic Commission, the Bicycle and Pedestrian Safety Commission, the city's Planning and Transportation Department, and the Legal Department. The legislation addresses more than just riding bicycles on sidewalks. It also provides regulations for roller skating, skateboards, and scooters. The City of Bloomington has just been awarded a $300,000 grant to test for hazardous substances and petroleum contamination along the Beeline Trail. The money comes from the Environmental Protection Agency, which announced 172 similar grants to communities across the country. The grants are intended to help communities deal with sites known as brownfields, which have been contaminated and are complicated to redevelop. In Bloomington, the grant funding would be spent on environmental assessments of six to eight different sites in the Beeline Trail corridor. According to information provided by the EPA, $150,000 would be allocated to test sites for what the agency calls hazardous substances. The remaining $150,000 would be spent on testing sites for petroleum contamination. Grant funds would also be used to develop cleanup plans. In international environmental news, the beaches of the tiny uninhabited Henderson Island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean contain the world's greatest concentration of plastic trash. Researchers found approximately 38 million pieces of plastic debris, including toy soldiers, dominoes, toothbrushes, cigarette lighters, razors, and fishing gear. The garbage weighed almost 18 tons, and over two-thirds of it was buried in shallow sediment on the beaches. Henderson Island is about halfway between New Zealand and Chile and is designated a UNESCO World Heritage Site. It's a coral atoll with unique ecology, outstanding for housing 10 plant and four bird species. The island is located at the center of an ocean current, the South Pacific Gyre, that collects floating trash from boats and South America. The island is some six miles long and three miles wide, and the researchers estimated that over 13,000 pieces of trash end up on it every day. More news from the South Pacific. The blood of green sea turtles in the Great Barrier Reef off the coast of Australia harbors environmental pollutants in the form of heart and gout medications, herbicides, and other pesticides, plus other industrial chemicals, according to a new report by the World Wildlife Fund. The researchers noted that chemical exposure has been associated with stress and other adverse effects in wildlife, and they discovered signs of inflammation and liver dysfunction in some of the green turtles. The study compared samples from turtles in urban areas to those from turtles in remote areas. The researchers found unknown chemicals in the turtles' blood to be of even greater concern. In fact, they found more chemicals they could not identify than chemicals they could. An author of the report said, quote, What you put down your sink, spray on your farms, or release from your industries ends up in the marine environment and in turtles in the Great Barrier Reef, unquote. And the Doomsday Seed Vault was flooded after Arctic, Arctic permafrost melted. Buried into a hillside on the Norwegian archipelago, the Svalbard Seed Vault contains more than 930,000 different varieties of seeds intended to ensure the safety of humanity's food supply in the event of a global disaster. 
Flooding breached this supposedly impregnable Arctic doomsday vault, containing a collection of seeds stored for an apocalypse scenario. Warmer-than-average temperatures caused a layer of permafrost to thaw. thaw. While no seeds were damaged and while minor flooding does occur at the vault every year, the Norwegian government will redesign the vault to protect against increasingly extreme future flooding. The extent of warming came as a surprise to managers of the vault. And now on to the big climate news of the week. President Trump announced on June 1st that the United States would withdraw from the Paris Climate Accord. Following the announcement, mayors from more than 200 U.S. cities joined several U.S. governors and numerous corporate leaders in signing an open letter of continuing support for the International Clean Power Plan. Leaders of an area encompassing 36% of the nation's gross domestic product have pledged to meet or exceed the plan's environmental standards on a subnational level. That's right, David, and local Mayor John Hamilton is one of the signatories. In a statement put out by his office, Bloomington Mayor John Hamilton called the president's decision to withdraw from the Paris Climate Accord a, quote, great disappointment. So many people, companies, and communities want leadership at the national level, but with this terrible message, it means cities like Bloomington are ready to lead, end quote. John Hamilton joins Indiana Mayors Karen Freeman Wilson of Gary, Pete Budigaig of South Bend, Tom Henry of Fort Wayne, and Jim Brainerd of Carmel, Indiana, in signing the statement from the climate mayors in response to President Trump's withdrawal from the Paris Climate Agreement. They are all supporters of the mayor's National Climate Action Agenda, known collectively as Climate Mayors. The Climate Mayors convened during the lead-up to the initial 2015 signing of the Paris Accord by the Obama administration. Mayors of three of the county's five largest cities, Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti, former Houston Mayor Anise Parker, and former Philadelphia Mayor Michael Nutter, launched the Mayor's National Climate Action Agenda after serving on President Obama's Climate Preparedness and Resiliency Task Force. While several Indiana cities are pledging to support the Paris Accord, Indiana Governor Eric Holcomb has not released any climate-related statements since President Trump's announcement last week. He has, however, expressed support for the president's anti-environment agenda in the past. In response to the president's March 2017 rollout of 10 executive orders aimed at dismantling the country's clean power plan commitments, Holcomb promised the move would, quote, give Indiana freedom from Washington's one-size-fits-all over-regulation, unquote. And that's the news for this week. For Eco Report on WFHB, I'm David Lyman. And I'm Don Guerra. We love to hear from our listeners. Contact us about stories we've aired or if you have any ideas for future stories. Please send emails to earth at wfhb.org. In today's Eco Report feature, correspondent Norm Holy talks with Forest Service research ecologist Susan Loeb, who has been involved with an effort to understand a massive bat die-off in the United States. Among the species that have been affected is the endangered Indiana bat. 
This is Norm Hawley for WFHB, and today I'm interviewing Dr. Susan Loeb. She's a research ecologist for the Forest Service at the Southern Research Station at Clemson University, and she's an expert on bats in the United States. Could you fill us in on how the bat populations are doing of the various species? Well, unfortunately, the bat populations in the eastern United States have continued to decline due to white-nose syndrome, and at least certain populations, certain species, uh, particularly the Indiana bat, the northern long-eared bat, the little brown bat, and the tricolored bat. White-nose syndrome is spreading. It's spreading south, and it is spreading east. It is now found in as far west as Nebraska, and actually there are some isolated cases in Washington State. So what states are, are not affected at this point? Well, at this point, I believe there are 33 states that are affected, and so most of the western states are not affected. So from about Nebraska west, with the exception of Washington State. The fungus has been found in Texas, although the disease has not been found in Texas. How about New Mexico? Because of the the large bat population, at least, that used to be there, how is that population holding up? If you're referring to the Brazilian free-tailed bat population in New Mexico, that is doing fine. At this point, we have not detected the fungus for white-nose syndrome on the pre-tailed bat. Can you give us an estimate of, uh, say, the total population of uh, Indiana bat in the United States and compare it with some you know, previous figure? The latest estimate for the Indiana bat, that was in 2015, was 523. 3,000 Indiana bats. The highest number that was counted recently was in 2007, and that was about 635,000 bats. So it's been a decline range-wide of about 10%. In Indiana, it's declined uh, about 22%. Is there any uh, migration, for example, of the Indiana bat simply because uh, the, the temperatures are too warm for roosting? No, uh, we have not seen that, and it's not because the temperatures are too warm for roosting. The numbers are declining due to white-nose syndrome. Now, is, there, is there any evidence of uh, any of the species developing an immunity to the uh, white-nose syndrome? Well, up in the northeast where uh, white-nose syndrome first hit, there are still bats that are surviving. And what people are observing is that they are hibernating in colder areas of the caves than they used to. And so the fungus grows the best between um, about 13 and 15 degrees centigrade. And so at colder temperatures, it will still grow, but as it gets colder and colder, the fungus grows more slowly. 
So bats that can hibernate at colder temperatures and in drier areas seem to do better. And that's what we're seeing is that's where the survivors are going is these colder, slightly drier areas. Now, is there any uh, hope that, that that population can, you know, breed itself through this crisis, or, or are we still stuck? There is definitely hope, and so we are thinking about ways that we can help these bats when they come out of hibernation, providing them with, say, warm roosts during the summer so that they don't have to spend as much energy and their fat reserves on maintaining body temperature. So that may be one way, just provide them with really good habitat, good roost, lots of food out there. And it take a long time because these species only have one young per year. And again, we don't know if this is a genetic response that we are seeing or just a behavioral response. We're not exactly sure what the trajectory of this population is going of these populations are. If they do survive, it will take a long time for them to recover. Do you have an estimate um, on the economic value of, of the bats in terms of the insects and things that they that they collect in the summer? That's a really difficult number to come by. Uh, there was an estimate that came out several years ago. It was based on a very good focus study in Texas, and then they extrapolated that across the United States. But they estimated that anywhere from about, uh, well, an average of about $23 billion worth of pest control services per year provided by bats nationwide. Any other news about the bats you would like our listeners to, to know about? Well, just that they can help bats. I know there are a lot of avid cavers in, in Indiana, and if they do go into caves, that uh, when they come out, that they do decontamination protocols that are suggested by the Fish and Wildlife Service, and that will prevent us from spreading the disease further. A lot of the caves in um, Indiana are actually now closed just to protect the species. So when I was uh, at Purdue uh, 50 years ago or so, we caved all over the place. Uh, But most of those caves that I was in are no longer available. But they were great caves. Right, right. And so a number of caves do have gates on them, and that is to that. Um, But some of the other caves are open. And, again, the important thing is that we do not transfer this. Okay. Thank you very much. I appreciate the interview very much. Uh, I've been interviewing Dr. Susan Loeb, research ecologist for the Forest Service, on the status of bats uh, generally in the U.S. Thank you very much for the interview. Thank you. EcoReport is currently seeking volunteer journalists to contribute short weekly headlines about ecological issues from indigenous resistance to infrastructure projects to climate change and biological diversity. Commitment is light and you can set your own schedule. For more information, email us at earth at wfhb.org or call 812-323-1200. 
It's time now for In Nature, a segment focusing on the flora and fauna of South Central Indiana. This is In Nature. Polyphemus moths are named after the giant one-eyed cyclops in Greek mythology because of the huge eye spots and their six-inch wide hind wings. The eye spot is exposed when the moth is startled, hopefully frightening away predators. It is a Native American silk moth. It differs from domesticated silk moths that produce silk bred by the Chinese for about 5,000 years that are dependent on humans to breed. Our native polyphemus moths live in deciduous woods, and the larva eats the leaves of a variety of tree species, including beech, sassafras, walnut, oak, maple, and others. The larva can eat 86,000 times its weight when hatched in a little less than two months. Fully grown, it is three to four inches long, bright green caterpillar with silver spots on its side. It spins a silk cocoon wrapped in the leaf of a host plant. There are usually two broods, one in early spring and one in late summer, which overwinters. To emerge from the cocoon, the pupa will spit a silk softening chemical that will dissolve a small portion of the cocoon. Once out, the moth must pump its wings with its bodily fluid in order to fully extend them. The adults do not have mouth parts, and so must mate and lay eggs within a week. The female will stay put and exude a male-attracting scent. The male's feathery antenna can pick up the female scent from miles away. Once they have mated, the female will lay eggs on a suitable host plant. They are parasitized by certain species of wasp, and the pupa are eaten by birds and squirrels. Pruning trees may remove the cocoon, and leaving lights on at night attracts moths and distracts them from breeding. You've been listening to In Nature. And now for our weekly events calendar. Learn how you can best protect Indiana State Forests at the Indiana State Forest Organizing Summit on Sunday, June 11th, from 1 to 4 p.m. at the Hotel Indigo Columbus Architectural Center, located at 400 Brown Street in Columbus, Indiana. This is your chance to collaborate with like-minded Hoosiers to develop an effective strategy to influence decision makers to protect Indiana State Forest. Contact Samantha at indianaforestalliance.org or call 317-602-3692. Ever wonder what's beyond the dirt path? Enjoy some off-trail exploring at Spring Mill State Park on Tuesday, June 13th from 10 to 11 a.m. Meet Kelsey at the Lakeview Activity Center to find out how. Hike the Ogle Hollow Nature Preserve with a naturalist at Brown County State Park on Thursday, June 15th from 2 to 3 p.m. and learn about the various flora that can be found. Meet at the Rally Campground parking lot. The hike will be three-fourths of a mile along rugged terrain. Please wear appropriate hiking shoes. There will be a woodpecker watch hike at McCormick's Creek State Park on Thursday, June 15th from 10 to 10.45 a.m. The woodpecker is a really neat bird. Learn interesting facts about the woodpecker's unique excavating techniques and take a short walk to see their work. Meet at the Canyon Inn. The Bloomington Community Orchard and the Community Gardening Program will be offering an Ah Nuts class on Saturday, June 17th from 2 to 4 p.m. at the Hilltop Gardens at Indiana University located at 2367 East 10th Street in Bloomington. Nut crops are among the easiest growing options for the home gardener. Nuts offer high nutritional values, long storage times, high yields, and few problems with insect pests and diseases. 
Learn how to select cultivars, plant and prepare planting sites, plant and nurture nut trees, and harvest and store the crops. To register, visit bloomingtoncommunityorchard.org slash classes at least 48 hours before the class. Finally, what started as a newspaper column by co-host Don Jordan then turned into a radio show featured on WGCL is now coming to WFHB. It's a show about hunting, fishing, local and national outdoor news, the environment, natural resources, issues, and more. Inside Outdoors is a fun and informative way to learn about what nature has to offer and how to be a good steward. Hosted by three longtime residents and nature enthusiasts of Bloomington, Don Jordan, Buddy Bill Moser, and Rich Reardon, it premieres this Saturday from 6 to 7 a.m. That wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power and generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's news stories were written by Linda Green, Norm Holy, Joe Crawford, Sarah Vaughn, and Rebecca Miller. Norm Holy produced the feature. Rebecca Miller edited the script. Julianna Daly compiled our events calendar. Our executive producer and engineer is Joe Crawford. For WFHB, I'm David Lyman. And I'm Don Guerra. Join us on Thursdays at 11.30 a.m. before Democracy Now! and on Fridays at 5 p.m. before Kite Line for our weekly radio rundown of ecological news and resistance. Until then, EcoReport encourages you to take direct action to defend the Earth. You've been listening to the Eco Report, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source for South Central Indiana. Bringing you news that the Earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org.